Well, good morning. I invite you, if you haven't already, to take your seat. Uh, my name is Kevin. Uh, I get to serve as one of the pastors here at Hillside. And we are going through a series called Closer Than You Think, which is an exploration on prayer over the summer because consistently we want to be a praying people. Now, the question I have for us this morning is, why would God actually care about our prayers? Why would God actually care about our prayers? He is God. He is the creator of the universe. And we are these strange little creatures on one small little planet in the back corner of one small galaxy. Why would God care? Should he care? Does he really have our best interests in mind? You may have said to yourself, like, well, I'm sure he cares, but he has more important things to think about. Or perhaps you feel like C.S. Lewis, that sometimes your prayers just hit the ceiling and they don't go any further. Or perhaps you might feel like I sometimes do, like I'm imposing upon God. I'm an annoyance or a nuisance. And we hate being a nuisance, don't we? We hate putting someone out. About five years ago, I was renting a room in someone's townhome, and the only shower in the house needed to be repaired, because we didn't have a shower, and I need to have a shower for the people around me's sake. Um, and it was also in the same week that my car finally broke down for good. It was a rough week, uh, and one of my best friends named Anthony kindly offered to let me stay with his family for a few weeks while all this was going on. They even let me borrow their family's vehicle from time to time. I was definitely putting them out. But I'll never forget one evening in particular. My friend and I had both been out together at an event at the church, but he had to get up super early in the next morning, and so he went home responsibly to get a good night's sleep. But when I got to the front door, like an hour, maybe two hours later, I went to grab my key and, and the lock was jammed. The key didn't work. I was locked outside of his house and he was asleep. And so I sent the text that I was pretty sure was going to wake him up and it did wake him up and he let me in. And man, did I feel terrible. Not just because I had to wake him up, but because there was a sense in me that, that thought I should have known better. I should have been more responsible. I should have gone home earlier when he did. This wasn't just an accident. I was now waking up my friend because of a situation that was kind of my fault. Isn't that sometimes what it feels like when we come to pray to ask for forgiveness? Or for answers for a test that we didn't study for? or that our bodies would be blessed by a Big Mac. It can kind of feel shameful to ask God for such things, to even ask him. And yet in the midst of that, we're still supposed to pray. And the question is, how? How do we do this? Does God care? Are we imposing? Well, the disciples asked Jesus precisely that in Luke chapter 11. So why don't you turn there in your Bibles right now, Luke chapter 11. The good news is, if you are wondering the same things that I am, you're not alone. 
the only time that the disciples ever actually ask Jesus to teach them something, it's when they ask him to teach them to pray. And this morning, I'd like to show you through this text that God does have your best interests in mind when you pray. And surprisingly, it's because he has his best interests in mind. And because he has tied your best interests to his best interests, he really does care. I hope we'll see how God cares more about the answer to your prayers than even you do. Because it's part of his plan to show his goodness. So let's take a look and see if we see this in there. If you're able, would you stand with me as we read from Luke chapter 11? This is Luke's account of the familiar Lord's Prayer, and you'll notice that Luke has an abbreviated version. This is their spark notes, so in case you feel like we're missing some things, we're not. (laughs) One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you, then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for who you are and for who you reveal yourself to be here. Lord, I pray that it would spur our hearts on to pray and to ask and to seek and to knock as you've asked us to. May your name be made known to be great in our midst. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can take a seat. The Lord's Prayer is familiar to a lot of us, but have you ever found it strange that it seems like the first things that we're told to pray have to do with God? Like, at first glance, it sounds like we are praying to God for things to happen to God. God, I pray that your name would be hallowed, that it would be made known to be great, that your kingdom would come. But 
isn't it kind of obvious that God would do the things that he wants to do? Like, why is it that we pray to God to ask him to do the things that God tells us to ask him to, ask him to do? <laughs> why doesn't he just do it? <laughs> well, I think God is perhaps in this showing us that he is not so distant, not so disconnected from our prayer life as we might think. Jesus is teaching here that our prayers have a great deal to do with God. And to illustrate this, he tells the story that we just read of the friend who shows up at midnight. Now, I don't think I appropriately understood this story until Daryl Johnson, who's a local pastor and scholar, helped take me out of my own cultural bias. And he was able to help me do that because he had been lifted from his cultural bias when he had been a pastor in Manila. So let me explain. In this story, Jesus paints this picture. He says, imagine. Imagine that in the middle of the night, you have a friend show up at your house from a road trip. You don't have any food for him. So you go to your other friend's house and knock on the door. His family is asleep, but you knock loudly anyway. You need bread. You need food for your friend. And even though, even though he tells you everyone is asleep, eventually he gets up and gives you what you need because of your shameless audacity. For those of us who have grown up in Western cultures, in cultures that kind of stem from Roman thinking, if you think like Britain, America, Canada, this story might be a little bit confusing at first. There are some details that maybe don't quite make sense, but at the end, once we think through it, this is how we're most likely to understand it. Our, our instinct is to go, first, we'll be a little bit bothered at the traveler who just showed up at our house without any warning and wanted to stay and be fed. Second, we're going to understand how embarrassing it would be, how ashamed we would feel to wake up our friend in the middle of the night. And third, when we finally wake up the friend inside and he finally comes to give us food, it's because we wore him down. It's because he's annoyed with us. It's because we forced his hand by making life so miserable that he finally had to come and help us. We kind of blackmailed him with our presence. And then when we read that it's because of our shameless audacity that he came to give us what we need, we understand that to mean that we should have been ashamed for asking kind of like that. But we ignored our shame so that we could get what we needed. This is how I've always kind of understood this story, that it's about persistence. And by the way, there is other places in the Bible where Jesus does talk about persistence in prayer. But the reason we understand this this way is a little bit because of our own lenses. Some of you have grown up in more collectivist cultures. Perhaps if you, your origins or your family structures are from the Middle East or from Asia or certain parts of Africa, it's more likely that you've experienced the world less through kind of a, a guilt-innocence way of thinking, but more of an honor-shame way of thinking. And the audience that Jesus was speaking to was more that kind of culture, where it's not the action of the individual that's most important, but the reputation of the whole family and the community. And that changes how we read the story. And it was when Daryl Johnson was pastoring in the Philippines that he noticed this. Um, I'm told that the, the Greek grammar of this story makes the first bit of the story one big run-on sentence. Like, not only a sentence, but one big rhetorical question. In some of your Bibles, the story starts off with, which of you, and it goes on, 
It's awkward in English. In fact, I think in English, five-year-olds are the only people who can get away with constructing a sentence or a question like this. <laughs> so maybe your five-year-old's a Greek scholar. I don't know. <laughs> the, the question, though, it might, it might sound like this. Can you imagine going to your friend at midnight and you say, give me three loaves of bread, and you say it's because a friend of mine is on a journey and he's come to me and I have no food to offer him. And your friend inside says, don't bother me, and he says, the door is already locked and my children are in bed and I can't get up and I can't give you anything. That's the question. Abbreviated, it's like this. Can you imagine if the person inside didn't get up to give you what you need? And the collectivist culture would say what? No. <laughs> I can't imagine that that would ever happen. I can't imagine not getting up to help them. The person inside would obviously get up and give you food. It is unthinkable that they wouldn't. How come? Well, for one, in an honor-shame-focused culture, there's a huge emphasis on hospitality. My step-grandmother is a Filipina lady. And I was always really confused about how she was so terrible at predicting how much food people would eat. <laughs> because we would have family gatherings at her home, and there would be probably three, four, five, six times the amount of food that it was physically possible to eat. We'd look at this and go, okay, we've, we're already full, and you still have seven bags of Chinese food that you've ordered in to feed us. It wasn't until recently that I learned that she wasn't just trying to fill us up. She was trying to demonstrate how much we were welcome. It would have been a shameful experience for her to have not prepared over and abundantly what possibly could have been eaten. So in Jesus' hypothetical story, the traveler who shows up unexpectedly isn't so much a nuisance as he is an opportunity to show great hospitality. There's no question of whether or not you would invite him in. The only problem is they don't have bread because they don't have preservatives, which means they don't have a big pantry full of extra loaves of bread. But the community is small enough that probably they do know who might have some extra bread and who is available, who's maybe the baker. So your friend comes over unexpectedly, and now you're on a mission. And it's probably more than just the one guy for bread because you need to get some utensils from somebody else and maybe a bedroll from somebody else in the community. This is a community problem. Somebody has shown up. The unexpected visitor needs to be taken care of. And for me and my community, my neighbors all know this just as much as I do, because the reputation of the entire village is on the line. Could you imagine how shameful it would be if a stranger came into our village and nobody looked after them? how shameful it would be if we didn't feed them, our whole community would be put to shame. Which is why, when Jesus poses this question, nobody even needs to give an answer. It's culturally obvious. Could you imagine going to your friend's house and asking for bread, and he says no? Can you imagine going there, and he makes excuses about his kids being asleep? Are you kidding me? Who would do that? Of course, no one would do that. So Jesus continues to say, look, he might not be getting up because you're buddies, but he is obviously going to give you what you need. Why? Because of your shameless audacity. And then I wonder if shameless audacity means what we assumed it meant <laughs> in our previous lens. Uh, Daryl Johnson reminds us that shameless means 
simply trying to avoid shame, right? But the question is, who's trying to avoid shame? And what is the shame? Is the shame waking up your neighbor? Or is the shame the shame of not offering hospitality to the visitor? In some of your Bibles, you'll notice that the translators have been wrestling with this because there's a footnote. And it actually says another way of saying shameless audacity might be to say, to preserve his good name. So even if he does not get up because you're friends, he will do it to preserve his good name. What would people say if he didn't get up? What would the community have to say about the man who would rather sleep than give bread to the midnight visitor? No, no, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. And Jesus tells this story about this father to tell us something about our father. Somehow, though this story Jesus, through the story that Jesus tells, we're supposed to understand that God is not distant from our prayers. In fact, it seems like the reason he answers our prayers isn't even for our sake, but for his. He is the kind of father who will open the door at midnight to preserve his good name, to avoid bringing shame on his name. And this isn't the first time we see this theme. If you look for it in scripture, you'll see it everywhere. Think about Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. Or if you look at Exodus 32, the people of Israel rebel against the Lord and they deserve death. And what's Moses' prayer to God? He appeals to God's reputation. He says, if the people are destroyed, the Egyptians will say that you are not good and that you brought these people out of Egypt to die. And you said that you would multiply and bless these people, that through them all the world would be blessed. So to preserve your good name, forgive these people. Even last week, as Marty led us through the lament in Psalm 13, we heard David concerned about what the people would say if God does not answer his prayer. It seems that all throughout scripture, the people are always asking God to act for the sake of his name, to preserve God's good name. And here, even in the Lord's prayer, this is how Jesus teaches us to pray. Hallowed be your name. God, preserve your great name. You are the good king, so may it be that your kingdom comes. Now, before we continue, I want to name a feeling that you might be feeling right now. For some of us, the fact that God cares so much about his reputation might not be making you feel very good inside. And perhaps you're not sure what to do with that feeling. Because, and maybe this is a question you're scared to ask, you might be saying, if this is true, does this call into question God's motivations. Is God selfish? I, I think all of us know people who act only out of their own interests, and we don't like them. <laughs> people who do things because they're so obsessed with their reputation, they don't want people to think poorly of them. 
in our scripture memory verse this morning, we even see God saying that we shouldn't look out for our own interests, but also for the interests of others. Could it be possible that God is like those self-absorbed people that we dislike so much? That's how the Greeks thought about their gods. It's how most of history thought about their kings and their gods as insecure leaders who need to be propped up by the praises of their people, to be approved by others. Brothers and sisters, I'm excited to tell you that that is not what God is like because he is God in the truest sense of the word. And because he is creator of the universe, it makes all of the difference. Okay, there's a, a theology word, and every once in a while it's fun to learn like a new theology word, right? The word aseity. Can you say it? Aseity. Aseity. <laughs> Which basically means uh, of self. Of self. And it's how we describe the fact that God is of himself. He doesn't depend on anything. If you think back even to when he appeared as like a burning flame to Moses on the burning bush, the bush doesn't burn up because God is his own fuel source. Before the creation of all things, God existed already. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in relationship before there even was a universe. So do you see... God could not have created us because he needed someone to assure him that he was great. He's not insecure. He was already in perfect, lacking nothing relationship. Unlike every selfish person you've ever met, he isn't anxiously in need of people to boost his ego. In fact, it is the opposite. God created all that is. He created the universe and all of humanity not to fill up his own cup, but because eternity itself cannot contain the profound love of God. His name is so great, it didn't need a universe to affirm it, but required a universe in order to proclaim it. And do you know what's so much more incredible? He loves us so much. He wants us to experience his love so much. He wants us to be with him and enjoy his goodness so much that he is the God who risks his own reputation to do so. He is by no means insecure. He is by no means needy. He is the most secure being in the universe. He needs nothing from us and yet gives everything for us. The fact that God is God-centered, that God cares most about people knowing accurately who he is, that is the best thing that could ever happen to us. God is focused on the reputation of his name, and he wants us to be focused on the reputation of his name because his name, his character, his person is the center of all existence. His character is the best part of the universe. He has created us out of the overflow of the goodness of his name. And it is in his name that we live and that we move and that we have our very being. And we see this as Jesus continues his prayer. He tells us to address God as Father. In our culture, and even more so in his, when the name of the Father is good, the name of the whole family is good. So, Father, hallowed be your name. 
may your reputation, and therefore our family reputation, be good. God does have our best interests in mind because he has his best interests in mind. And he has tied our interests to his by making us his children. This is the cosmic example of parents put on your oxygen mask first. So how is God's reputation upheld? When the world sees that he is faithful to do what he has said he will do, which is why we pray, give us our daily bread, forgive us our sins, lead us not into temptation. Part of the Father's name being hallowed is that his children have what they need every single day. Sustenance, forgiveness, and forgivingness, because we need both, and character that withstands difficulties. So let's look back at this midnight visitor example. We focused primarily on how the man inside will answer the door to avoid the shame that would come if he didn't. But the story is powerful in another area. You see, the reputation of the man inside is 100% tied to meeting the needs of the person who needed bread. The man needs bread, and the father has the good name of someone who gives bread to people who need bread. So for the father's name to be good, the person asking needs bread. And for the person to get bread, the father's name will be good. They are absolutely 100% linked. The 23rd Psalm says the same thing. We remember that because God is our shepherd, we have everything that we need. We, God makes us righteous for his name's sake because for the shepherd's name to be good, his sheep must be led down paths of righteousness. And for the sheep to be righteous, the shepherd's name will be good. They're linked. The reputation of our shepherd Lord is 100% tied to bringing about righteousness in his people. This is why God has created a people, to magnify the goodness of the kind of God that he is. Throughout the story of the people of Israel in Exodus, we're told that his people carry God's name. They represent his name. They show the world by their good and by their bad what kind of God their God is. That is why in Exodus 32, they were in such danger, because they were misrepresenting the good name of God, which meant they were robbing the world from being blessed by the good name and character of God. But the good news is, is God forgives his people because his ability to uphold his name is far more powerful than our ability to shame it. Even when people attempt to shame his name, his good name somehow overwhelms that by being more merciful, more forgiving. Those who would shame his name only end up magnifying his name even more. So how much more is his reputation made great when we become more like him? How much more is he magnified when we unexplainably look like our father? which is one of the reasons that he asks us to pray. Lead us not into temptation. Don't let the tests and trials that happen in our lives 
turn us into sinners. God, for the sake of your name, we need to face even our testing like you did as opportunities to strengthen in character, to depend more on you instead of on ourselves. And ultimately, that is what praying for God's reputation leads us to do, to depend on him. And into a proper orientation of what it is that we really need. It's really hard to pray for the wrong things when we're praying in line with the reputation of the king of the universe. And it is profound, beyond belief, that the king of the universe has tied his reputation to fulfilling what we really need. So at the end of all that, Jesus says what? Ask. Seek. Knock. Because God does have your best interests in mind. His reputation is on the line when it comes to giving you what you need. And what's more, he truly knows what we truly need. That's why he brings one more father into the story with one more story about food. He says to the audience, to the fathers in the audience, look, you know what your kids need. When they ask you for the very good things that they need, are you gonna give them bad things instead? Of course not, they say. Not only would that bring shame on my good name as a father, I love this kid so much, there's no way I would give her a dangerous snake or scorpion when she asks for food. And those of you who have kids, by the way, also know that when your kid asks for a king-sized chocolate bar at 9 p.m., that is also not what they need. <laughs> you know what they need. Now, even some pretty terrible parents have figured this out. But Jesus says, look, if caring for your kids in this way is obvious to you, if you know what your kids need, how much more does your Father in heaven know what you need? Human parents know how to give good gifts. Your heavenly father does too. And so he lists the greatest gift of all, himself. How much more will he give even the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Not only does God give us what we need, but who we need. He gives us his very presence. And in this way, Daryl Johnson says that the act of asking, even the act of seeking, the act of knocking, the act of trusting in the one who's on the other side of the door is already receiving and already finding because you are in communion with the king of the universe who has tied himself to you. So I think back to the time that I woke up my friend at midnight you know, the next morning when I went down to get my cereal, as we got ready to ride to work together, I was deeply anxious. I was embarrassed. I was feeling apologetic. I was ready for him to be upset at me for waking him up. But the most gospel thing happened. Nothing. I was floored that nothing had changed with how he spoke or acted or how he was. There was no sly comments about getting less sleep, no passive-aggressive digs. 
It turns out that my friend Anthony was a lot like his heavenly father. Can you imagine Kevin being locked out of your house in the middle of the night because he forgot his key and you not getting up to open the door for him? Of course not. Not only would that be a shameful thing for my family, but Kevin is my friend whom I love. Sisters and brothers, it makes a big difference to know what kind of person is on the other side of the door. My friend Anthony has taught me a lot about the way that the father responds to me. And let me tell you, it's not the last time I've woken him up at midnight. He's come to rescue me when transit closed down the trains from a day out in Vancouver. He's come to visit me when I've been in the hospital with a 3 a.m. migraine. Because, of course he would. And I hope that my close friends know that, of course, I would too. There are a handful of people whose numbers are programmed to ignore the do not disturb when I go to sleep on my phone so that I will be woken up at midnight if they ever need me. How much more does God want you to ask him for what you need? And since he has tied the reputation of his name to answering his prayer, don't you think he will give you what you need? God is not worried about more important things. He's not bothered by you coming to him. God cares more about the answer to your prayers than you do. So let's practice. We're going to take a moment. We're going to respond in song shortly. But before we do, Lord, would you teach us to pray? <laughs> <laughs>